There and Back Again, an Artemis One lunar mission tale, this week on Planetary Radio. I'm Sarah Al Ahmed of the Planetary Society with more of the human adventure across our solar system and beyond. We've all heard it before, but some things are worth the wait, and NASA's Artemis One mission to the moon was no exception. This week, we celebrate the amazing success of the first launch of the Artemis program with Jeremy Graber. He's the assistant launch director for NASA's Kennedy Space Center in Florida, USA. If you're a fan of the Artemis program, you're going to want to stick around for What's Up with Bruce Betts and a chance to win a special Artemis prize in this week's Space Trivia Contest. It's no secret that we love solar sails here at the Planetary Society. We all shared in a big moment last November when our beloved crowdfunded LightSail 2 spacecraft reached its end of mission, but its legacy lives on in a new generation of solar sails. Last week, we were thrilled by the launch of the Gamma Alpha Solar Sail mission. Gamma is a French aerospace company that drew on lessons learned from the Planetary Society's LightSail 2 spacecraft. This new mission aims to further test solar sailing technology. It consists of a six-unit CubeSat about the size of a large shoebox. CubeSats are a class of mini-satellite based on a cube unit that's 10 centimeters long on each side. Gamma Alpha will attempt to deploy a solar sail about the size of a tennis court from within that confined space. That's really impressive. We also got word that researchers from the University of Western Ontario in Canada discovered something curious when studying a fireball that streaked across the skies of Alberta in 2021. The rocky meteoroid's trajectory suggests that it came from the Oort cloud. That's the immense cloud of icy bodies at the edge of our solar system. We're used to observing comets that travel into the inner solar system from the Oort cloud, but this object suggests that it may contain rocky bodies and not just icy ones. You can learn more about these and other stories in the January 6th edition of our weekly newsletter, The Downlink. Read it or subscribe to have it sent to your inbox for free every Friday at planetary.org downlink. A few years ago, I got to see my first rocket launch. Highly recommend. If you haven't had a chance to witness an event like that, I really encourage you to find a way to do it at some point in your lifetime, because it will blow your mind. My first rocket launch wasn't that long ago, actually. I went to Vandenberg Space Force Base in California to watch the launch of the DART mission. That's the double asteroid redirection test that smashed right into the asteroid moonlit Dimorphos last September. I was really hoping that my second launch was going to be the Artemis One mission. My Planetary Society colleagues and I adventured to the Kennedy Space Center in Florida last August, and we really hoped that we would be able to see that first launch. But of course, it was scrubbed. <laughs> but that's okay. Matt Kaplan, the show's former host, shared many of our adventures during that trip in the September 7th, 2022 episode of Planetary Radio. I'll link to that on this week's Planetary Radio page at planetary.org radio. Since we couldn't be there to watch that launch, I had to talk to someone who did, which is why I invited Jeremy Graber to this week's show. He's the Assistant Launch Director and Chief of the Test, Launch, and Recovery Operations Branch within the Exploration Ground Systems Program at NASA's Kennedy Space Center. He witnessed the inspiring night that Artemis One launched firsthand and joined me to celebrate the mission's success. Thanks for joining me, Jeremy. Hey, thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. 
I just wanted to say congratulations to you and everyone that worked on Artemis One launch. That was absolutely amazing. Thanks, Sarah. Uh, yeah, I'm so proud of our team and so happy with everything that's gone on. Launch countdown, the mission, splashdown just yesterday. Fantastic for everybody involved. Uh, really proud of our teams. Yeah, we're actually recording this a little early and the splashdown of Orion was just yesterday. So it was really timely and really exciting to watch that. Were you watching it in San Diego or were you actually watching a broadcast of it? No, I was watching a broadcast. The landing and recovery team has been out in San Diego uh, doing uh, just-in-time training with the crew of the U.S. Navy Portland LPD ship. And so that team's been out there for weeks, and it really just didn't work with being part of the launch team and then also being part of the recovery team. But that team is, uh, uh, has been training for years to get to this point, along with the U.S. Navy, and they just did a fantastic job in coordination with the flight control team in Houston and the Mission Control Center. Did a fantastic job. Great splashdown, great recovery, and I'm really proud of that team. Right. It just all comes full circle. It's wonderful seeing the launch be so successful. And finally, this moment, getting that capsule back. It's all really exciting. Absolutely. And I'm wondering, you know, you've been working at Kennedy Space Center for about two and a half decades now, and you've seen so much launch history, everything from the end of the space shuttle era to, you know, now the SLS rocket launching and the beginning of the Artemis generation. And after all of that, what did it feel like to finally see Artemis One launch? Well, you're absolutely correct. I've gotten to see a whole lot of things here uh, at the Kennedy Space Center, be a part of a lot of different things. My perception of all of those things throughout time as a young engineer moving through and, and moving into new and different opportunities, getting to move in to be a NASA test director and run Launch Countdown, and then getting to be a part of STS-132 being the, the launch NASA test director for that mission was a big milestone. And then moving into um, Ares-1X and getting to be a part of that launch team for that single mission, that, that was a, a, an amazing experience. Then moving into uh, the next generation as we move forward, I got to be the NASA recovery director for uh, Exploration Flight Test 1 and recover Orion for the first Orion flight and splash down. But what I'll tell you is from about 2012 till uh, just this November, We've been working in building this launch team and this launch of Artemis One and working for and with Charlie Blackwell Thompson, our launch director, and putting together this team that has basically built this whole launch from scratch has been a, a unique and amazing experience seeing how this team has created the software and all the simulation capability for us to do over 30 launch countdown sims with our whole team dozens of additional sims with smaller teams to prepare ourselves to be ready for the launch of Artemis One. And being a part of all of that from the beginning has been just the, the most rewarding events. And uh, to see all of that come together and finally come off with the launch uh, on November 16th was just truly an amazing opportunity, uh, something that our whole team is, is so proud of. And for me, it's really seeing that team grow mature and and really be spot on ready to go and just really have a, a a spectacular launch of artemis one it's really really rewarding coming into the shuttle program i came in in the middle of a 30-year program and many of the people that were part of that program had been doing it for 15 years and and i got to do the last 15 years so there was a lot of history and a lot of things built none of us had ever launched before recognizing that and you know it's a tradition amongst the launch team that when somebody 
fills a role for the first time, they get their tie cut. Every one of us did that for the first time, filled that role for the first time. Charlie had some very specific scissors made just for that occasion. And I believe she cut every single launch team member's tie or whatever they had, their scarf or whatever it was that represented what was important to them on launch day. That was such a, a great moment for myself to have my tie cut for, for my position as the assistant launch director, but then to see the whole team get recognized and feel that honor to be a part of that team. It just wanted to soak in what history they had just made. That's really great that you bring up the ties. Did you pick a special like Artemis tie? I didn't, you know, it, for, for me, it's, you never know when you're actually gonna launch. And I wanna, because, you know, we, we did scrub a couple of times. For me, it's let's just get in there and do the work and whatever you're wearing is, uh, is what's gonna be commemorated on that day. Right, a moment you'll remember forever. <laughs> and you, you did bring this up a little, which is that, you know, Artemis did scrub a few times. It, it went through a lot of struggle. My, my coworkers and I were actually there in August to try to see the first attempted launch. It was so awesome to be there, even though it got scrubbed, just to kind of be there with the crowd. Well, that's, that's the thing that uh, is really impressive about this team. You can do all of the testing and, and all of the analysis and look at all the models, but the reality of how all of the systems interact is really where you understand how the rocket really works and how it's gonna work on launch day. And so through each one of those opportunities, we learned something and you know throw in a couple of hurricanes for us to work through. Just an impressive set of days and, and amount of work um, that this team did in those days leading up to launch. But again, it's how this team looks at things. It's nothing is too hard. Everything is just what's the work? What's the issue? What's the challenge that's in front of us? Let's put all of our heads together and work through it. And all of those amazing results were shown to, to the world on the 16th. That was fantastic to see and be a witness and be a part of. Yeah, it was really impressive to see it all come together after all of that, especially after all of the hurricanes. And then there was that that tense moment during the night when there was another fuel leak detected and they had to send the red crew, that, that specialized team of technicians out there to make sure that that leak was fixed. And were you just holding your breath the whole time that crew was under the rocket? I wouldn't say I was holding my breath, but the key thing about a red crew a red crew is a really specialized capability and you really hope you never need to use it, but you put all the work in ahead of time to ensure that they know how to handle their work if they're called upon. And we know how to handle protecting them and watching them every step of the way through the entire time uh, that they're out at the pad. You know, for me, I didn't hold my breath because I knew the preparation had been done and we knew how to handle the situation one of the tasks that I had as a part of the Artemis One launch was to put all of our um, emergency capabilities in place. So we've got a fire rescue team that's ready to go in if there's an emergency while the red crew's in. So we worked with those teams to plan out how we would accomplish that type of rescue in case of that very unlikely situation. We have emergency medical teams on site, prepped and ready to go right outside the launch control center. And we've got emergency medical uh, evacuation via helicopters ready to go in case there had been an emergency. So you do all that preparation beforehand and have all those resources ready to go. In addition, 
all the preparation for the Red Crew members, all the training, all of the expectations that they go through to be ready. And they're staged and ready. They were staged and ready through every wet dress, every launch attempt, and really having all of that preparation, having those, those individuals ready to go do that work. And then also through our launch countdown simulations, we trained on problems that drove us to Red Crews so that our teams in the control room knew how to go through that process. All of that work was put in place and then it became uh, necessary on, on launch day. You hope it doesn't, but it did. Yeah, I remember watching a little bit of the broadcast where the Red Crew was being interviewed. And it was fun for me because there was never a moment that I doubted that they were going to get out of it safely. I feel like we've reached this point in space travel where I can truly trust that everyone involved is going to be safe. And so it's, it's way less tense. It was more of a just look at those heroes out there, you know, just hard hats off to the Red Crew because they, they were the, the unsung heroes of the night, or I guess partially sung heroes of the night. <laughs> Yeah, they've definitely uh, gotten a chance to be recognized. And I'm so proud that not only that they did a great job, but they're being recognized for it, which is which is awesome. Well, this rocket turned out fantastic, but I know that we have about you know two years until Artemis 2 launches, right? Yeah, absolutely. And a lot of amazing things ahead of us to get to that Artemis 2 launch. Very much looking forward to those. You know, we've got different capabilities you know, Artemis 1, the intent was not to have any personnel inside the launch danger area through uh, once we started cryo-loading. Obviously, we had the red crew, so we, we had that difference. But for Artemis 2, we absolutely will have personnel inside the launch danger area, and that'll be the, the flight crew and our closeout crew that will be in there to get the flight crew loaded on board Orion. Having a flight crew makes a, a big difference in a mission. Uh, the visibility is much uh, different the level of scrutiny and safety and safety mindedness on everything that we do from this point on is ratcheted up that much higher because our primary responsibility in everything we do here at Kennedy Space Center is safety of our crew, safety of our ground crews, and then our, the safety of our flight hardware and our ground systems. And that will be carried through in everything we do from here on out. Do we have any idea when we're going to know who some of these crew members are going to be? I mean, A, because we want to, you know, cheer them on while they're still on Earth, but also because I want to start collecting action figures. So the, the word I'm hearing is in 2023, we will, uh, we'll start to hear some of that news. I'm also... As a woman who loves space, I'm really excited that we're going to have a more diverse cast of people getting to adventure to the moon. And part of that is that we need to study how space and these long-term spaceflight missions affect people's bodies over time. So I know two of the mannequins that were on board this Artemis flight were actually modeled after female bodies to you know, see how that actually impacts them over time. And I I'm wondering, do we have any evidence that there might be differences in the way that women's bodies, you know, deal with long-term spaceflight? Yes, we absolutely do. I mean, that's the one thing that I think is really kind of my view. This is my own personal Jeremy Graber view of NASA and, and what we've done through our history. And when I look at Apollo, Apollo was, let's demonstrate this amazing capability that that we can put together and fly humans to the moon, right? And land them on the moon, bring them back safely. Those were the first steps that, that kicked everything off. And then everything after that has been, let's build on that capability, build on those successes. And what the space shuttle program really has done is demonstrate how we can live in space for a long term, how we can build an amazing international space station 
that is flying humans every day, all day for decades, right? And, and learn everything we can learn about what it's like to live in space, have astronauts be on board for more than a year, right? Really demonstrate what living in space does to the human body and then take that next step, right? Now we're gonna take all of those lessons that we've learned through all of these successful missions and now take it that next step further. And so we have already learned so much, but the next step is how do we live even further away from earth, not low earth orbit. Now we're gonna live at the moon where things are you know, considerably different. There is radiation. There is all these things that the, the low earth orbit has protections against. And that really is the focus of the capabilities that the mannequins that are on board Artemis One and Orion are really bringing back that data. You know, we collected a certain amount of data during Apollo, and now we can, we've got so much more advanced technology, sensors, all those things that we can now bring that data back and be able to adjust designs, adjust capabilities on board so that we, we do make those adjustments based on physiology, male, female, all of those things and protect our astronauts as best as possible moving into Artemis II and beyond. And it's wild that we're at the point where these lessons have us right on the cusp of, of literally sending people back to the moon, but also potentially having a lunar gateway in orbit or also having a base on the moon. And I'm wondering, I know this is kind of, you know, not your thing, but if you could select a target for people to land on the moon and go explore, what features on the moon do you think you would want to go see more of? Well, some of my background where I started in the space shuttle program was the fuel cells on board the orbiters that, that powered the orbiters while they were in space. So fueled by gaseous hydrogen and gaseous oxygen, uh, they're great. They give off heat, uh, electricity, and water. The best thing is you can get all of that from water. And so in my mind, landing in a, in a location at one of the poles that has the potential for water just opens so many possibilities and opportunities because if you have water, you can make those key elements that you need to be able to generate power. And then once you can generate power on a consistent basis, you can sustain human life in that location. And so that's really exciting to me. And so, you know, if somebody came and asked me, that would be one of those locations would be the primary spots uh, from my perspective. I love to hear that because I too think, you know, those permanently shadowed craters at the, the poles of the moon where we can actually find water would be a perfect place to go. Well, thanks, Jeremy. This has been a wonderful conversation. I'm so looking forward to the next Artemis missions, and hopefully we can talk again in the future about this. That would be fantastic. Thank you so much, Sarah, and I uh, really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and your listeners. I had such a fun time during that conversation with Jeremy Graber, the Assistant Launch Director at Kennedy Space Center. Jeremy, if you're listening, don't be surprised when I show up at KSC with the dream of cheering off one of those launch towers. You all can hear the extended version of my interview with Jeremy and a bonus segment on our new Space Life Goals list in the podcast and online version of this show at planetary.org radio or anywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. We'll be right back for What's Up with Bruce Betts after a short break. There is so much going on in space science and exploration, and we're here to share it with you. Hi, I'm Amber, Digital Community Manager for the Planetary Society. Catch the latest space exploration news, pretty planetary pictures, and Planetary Society publications on our social media channels. You can find the Planetary Society on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube. 
I hope you'll like and subscribe so you never miss the next exciting update from the world of planetary science. Hello, I'm George Takei, and as you know, I'm very proud of my association with Star Trek. Star Trek was a show that looked to the future with optimism, boldly going where no one had gone before. I want you to know about a very special organization called the Planetary Society. They are working to make the future that Star Trek represents a reality. Boldly go to build our future. Welcome back to Planetary Radio. And now it's time for What's Up with Bruce Betts. Once more, I am joined by the chief scientist of the Planetary Society, the amazing, the marvelous, the stupendous, Dr. Bruce Betts. Oh, I love these introductions. Hi, Sarah. How are you doing, you wonderful, amazing, tremendously awesome host person? See, that's why I do it. So you say nice things to me. No, I, I know last week I said I was going to be extra mean, but I figured I'd throw you a curveball. <laughs> I know, it confused me. Hey, you want to know what's up in the night sky? You probably already know, but how about I tell other people? Yeah, what's up? We've still got super bright Venus coming up, getting easier to see low in the west. It's going to hang with us and get higher over the coming weeks and months. Brightest star-like object in the night sky. And then if you look higher above it, there's yellow Saturn, and they're coming together. They're coming together and will be really close to each other, but very low on the western horizon after sunset on January 22nd. And then Saturn will keep dropping lower. Venus will get higher. Meanwhile, farther up in the sky, we've got Jupiter looking bright. And over farther in the sky, we got reddish Mars, which is still quite bright. It looks quite lovely compared to Aldebaran, the reddish star of Taurus. They are hanging out near each other. And uh, you can watch Mars dim as we get farther away from it over the coming weeks. Yeah, that'll do. Okay. How about on to this week in space history? It was a busy week, and here's a small sampling just from the 2000s, the aughts, the whatever that decade is supposed to be called. 2005, the Huygens probe, European Space Agency Huygens probe that flew with Cassini to Saturn, went through the atmosphere of Saturn and landed on the surface. Really, really amazing. A year later, Stardust returned cometary material to the Earth via sample return. And two years after that, Messenger had its first flyby of Mercury. Very memorable to me because it always bugged me that we hadn't seen half of Mercury up close. And flyby number one pretty much filled in the rest of the map. And then, of course, great mission after that. I remember when Huygens landed. Eventually, it took a few years, but they made just a really beautiful video of the imagery that it took on its way down to the surface. And if you look really carefully in the background, you can see the shadow of its parachute just kind of moving overhead, which I encourage people to look up on YouTube. It's fantastic. Okay, moving on to Random Space Fit. <laughs> I like that one. Did you notice that we didn't auto-tune you last week? Yes, I appreciated it. I may need auto-tuning, but uh... all right, here's your facts. You may have discussed the SLS rocket in the show earlier. I'm just guessing. No, didn't even come up. Oh, okay. If you set the SLS rocket on its side, it would stretch about the length of a football field. Yikes. That really puts it in context, you know. I mean, being at Kennedy Space Center, it was like tiny, tiny in the distance, but... <laughs> yeah, it's big. It's big. I mean, I wouldn't suggest putting it on its side, but if you did, that's what it would look like. Okay, we move on to the trivia contest, and I asked you, what hardware 
What hardware did the Planetary Society fly to Mars as part of these Spirit and Opportunity missions? How do we do, Sarah? We did pretty well. We got a lot of really great answers. I know uh, you said that we don't need great detail on this one. People did, in fact, send us great detail. But the dice have spoken. I used a die this time to figure out who won instead of a random number generator, just because it's extra fun. <laughs> and because I'm a nerd with a bag of dice bigger than anyone should have. But our winner this week is Gene Lewin from Washington State, USA, who sent us this beautiful little poem. He wrote, If you have the opportunity to visit Planum Meridiani, you'll find a disc of silica, a secret coded DVD. And if the spirit moves you, stroll over to Gusev Crater. You can read the secret message, but you'll need to be a good translator. Each disc is a time capsule, four million names they both possess, mounted on the lander's pedals and provided by TPS. Ooh. Of course, that is the Planetary Society. Excellent finish there, nice. That's impressive. Well, good, congratulations, Gene. Yeah, you know, it's a, a tradition with us sending people's names, people who submit their names to us, but also just the names of all of our members onto spacecraft around the solar system. So becoming a member of the Planetary Society is a good way to get your name plastered all over <laughs> planets and different bodies across our solar system. It's a great way to make yourself feel like you're a part of that mission going somewhere. So I submit my name for every mission I can. And during this week, we got a lot of really good messages from people. I I can't read all of them, obviously, but I really do want to thank people personally for all of the really great messages they sent to me about my first episode. You know, it's really daunting to step into Matt Kaplan's shoes now that he's retired from the show. So every message I get that tells me that I did a good job makes me feel so much better and uh, really made my week. Hey, Sarah. Yeah? You did a good job. <gasps> really? <laughs> thank you. Yeah. No. Yeah. Yes, really. <laughs> Sorry, couldn't resist. But you know, if you want to send a message to uh, Matt or me or Bruce, we'll also give your messages to Bruce. Really? Yeah. Uh, you can always email us at planetaryradio at planetary.org. So what's our new trivia question for this week? Well, in a rare combination of theme words, last week I asked you about the original Doom video game. We'll get to that next week with the answer. Now I'm going to take a different Doom Trek. We're going to play Where in the Solar System? Where in the Solar System is Doom Mons, named after Mount Doom in The Lord of the Rings? Go to planetary.org slash radio contest. I love this one. I remember pointing out to people in previous jobs how cool it was that there was a particular place in the solar system with many names from The Lord of the Rings. Excellent. Yeah, I wouldn't go to Mount Doom, though. I mean... I mean, you know, if you have good reason, if you're carrying some kind of, you know, maybe evil ring or something with you. Well, all right. If you have the answer to this question, you can submit your answer until Wednesday, January 18th at 8 a.m. Pacific time. And you're probably going to want to actually send in your answers for this because we have some special prizes this time. When Bruce and I went to Kennedy Space Center to watch the first scrub launch of Artemis 1, we went to the gift center and I got a whole bunch of Artemis pins. So we'll be giving away up to two of these Artemis pins. Cool. How do you feel about astronaut ice cream? If I bring you astronaut ice cream from every trip I go on, would you eat it? I would. Would I be excited about it? Probably not, but I would eat it because you brought it to me and that would be a nice thought, except now I'm sensing it's not actually a nice thought. Hmm. I could just see the look of disappointment in your eyes when I give you just once more astronaut ice cream. <laughs> Ooh, I sense a theme. All right, we'll make sure that uh, 
Sarah doesn't travel. I've doomed myself. Mount doomed myself. But anyway, all right, Bruce, it is time for you to take us out. All right, everybody, go out there, look up the night sky, and think about gnomes. Thank you, and good night. Gnomes. You heard it here, folks. That was Bruce Betts, the chief scientist of the Planetary Society. We've reached the end of this week's episode of Planetary Radio, but we'll be back next week to share the inspiring story of Jason Achilles. He's a musician and a space fan who found his way onto the team responsible for putting one of the first successful microphones on Mars. Planetary Radio is produced by the Planetary Society in Pasadena, California, and is made possible by our dedicated members. Mark Hilverta and Ray Pauletta are our associate producers. Andrew Lucas is our audio editor. Josh Doyle composed our theme, which was arranged and performed by Peter Schlosser. And until next week, Ad Astra. Ad Astra.